BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you on a kind of rainy, misty day here in Portland. This is really important stuff. Back in the 1970s, when Republicans were talking about supply-side economics, this was the late 1970s when Maggie Thatcher in 1978 became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and began a massive deregulation and privatization program privatizing the railroads, breaking up the coal miners union, the largest and most powerful union in the UK, uh, deregulating everything. Jimmy Carter kind of got on the bandwagon. He deregulated in, in, as I recall, it was uh, 78, 79, I think it was. He deregulated trucking, which uh, of course has led to this disaster where truckers no longer, I mean, it used to be, if you were a long haul trucker, you had a good life. You know, that was a good, solid middle-class income and (laughs) no more. And so in 78, 79, 1980, when Reagan came along and the Republicans started talking about supply side economics and and, uh, all that kind of thing, nobody sat around and said, oh, come on, you can't win an election on cutting taxes on rich people. Seriously? You want to cut taxes on corporations? You want to deregulate corporations so the air is dirtier and the water is is more poisonous and, and the chemical companies can continue to poison our children? Nobody in the meeting was saying, oh, Republicans can't, well, maybe a few, you know, outlying voices, but the but you know, the, the New York Times and the Washington Post, they were not running editorials as Reagan was coming into office saying, Ronnie, you just can't do this or when he ran for re-election in 1984. Oh, come on, Reagan, you can't, you know, don't forget it. Republican, quote, big ideas, like deregulating industries so that the Koch brothers can make more money and we end up with more poison in our air and water, destroying labor unions, aggressively destroying labor unions. We went from one third of our workforce being unionized to 6% in the private economy today. That was a big Republican idea, right? Undoing the Voting Rights Act so that individual states could start essentially discriminating against people or drawing districts based on race. A big Republican idea. Nobody was criticizing that. Do away with Medicare. Honest to God, the Republicans have been campaigning and doing away with Medicare ever since it was first proposed by Lyndon Johnson back in the 1960s. A big Republican idea. No Medicare. 
No Medicaid. Republicans have been campaigning against Medicaid forever. Republicans have been voting, have been campaigning against Social Security. George W. Bush, in 1978, when he ran for Congress in Texas, his entire, the whole focus of his campaign was privatizing Social Security. A big Republican idea. When he got reelected in 2004 in the state of Ohio, when they outsourced their vote counting to a private Republican-owned company in Kentucky, and suddenly it was like, oh, uh, Bush won Ohio. That gives him the White House. Right after that, George W. Bush came out and said, hey, I earned political capital. I'm going to spend it now. And he went on a 25, as I recall, 25 city or a bunch of city, anyhow, tour all across the United States, promoting the idea of privatizing Social Security based on all the political capital he had from the wars that he had lied us into. Nobody said, hey, that Republican big idea is crazy. But now we've got the media saying, you know, Democrats, they're not allowed to have big ideas. I mean, check out some of the stuff the Republicans are doing right now. The Federal Election Commission just released the statistics on voter purge. Now, this is, these are the official government statistics from the U.S. government on voter purges by red states just over the last two years, uh, from 2016 to 2018. We don't have 2019 numbers yet because we're still in the middle of the year. And what they found was that 17 million voters, registered voters, were removed from the rolls nationwide. And in jurisdictions that were previously in, in, in counties or in states, that well, in states that previously had to pre-clear with the Federal Election Commission, any of their voter purges under the, under the Voting Rights Act. As soon as in the Shelby County decision in, what was it, 2014, as I recall? 2013, Shelby County versus Holder. In that decision, the Supreme Court said, oh, those states that have been, you know, discriminating against people of color forever, they don't have to pre-clear, they don't have to ask the federal government's permission before they start purging, you know, black people, Hispanic people off the voting rolls. They can just go ahead and do it. And sure enough, 40% higher, the purge rate in those states that were formerly restrained by the, by the Voting Rights Act. This is a huge Republican idea. Knock 17 million people off the voting rolls, which they've done in the last two years. The last, you know, the last two years, Republican secretaries of state, by and large, have knocked 17 million people. Brennan Center has a great report on this. You can see it over at their website, brennancenter.org. 17 million people off the voting rolls. Now, Republicans do this, of course, because it's the only way they can win elections. If everybody was allowed to vote, and I'm talking about everybody who is a citizen of the United States and therefore should be eligible to vote, anybody who is walking around loose in society who is, and who is a U.S. citizen and is over 18 years old, if everybody could vote, the Republicans would never win another election outside of the places where you've got deep, deep poverty and everybody's living on the government dole like, you know, Mississippi and Kentucky, parts of both those states, for that matter, rural parts of Oregon, where I live, where government subsidies provide most of people's livelihoods and they always vote Republican. I mean, figure that one out, right? But in any case, 
outside of those you know, rare areas, the Republicans would lose all their power if everybody could vote. So their big idea is make it really hard for people to vote. The other really big idea that the Republicans have is stack the federal courts. Moscow Mitch yesterday confirmed 13 federal judges. So far, Donald Trump has had more federal judges appointed. One-fifth of all federal judges right now are appointed by Donald Trump. One-fifth. He's had more federal judges appointed than any other president in the history of the United States. Why? Because Moscow Mitch blocked all federal judge appointments during the Obama administration, particularly during the last two years, including one for the Supreme Court. That's a huge idea. Right? Republican big ideas. Hey, if we can't win in the legislature, we can't win with ballot initiatives, we can't win you know, in, in general, but we can take over the third branch of government, the judiciary. And they've been working on this for literally 30 years. A big idea. Here's another one. Donald Trump just announced, hey, I support a plan for nationwide paid family leave that gives parents six weeks of paid leave to care for their newborn child. Ivanka Trump tweets it. We're very encouraged that Senator Bill Cassidy and Senator Sinema have released the first bipartisan framework for hashtag paid family leave legislation. Only catch, you know, if you've got a kid, you get this $2,000 child credit, presumably to pay for the cost of raising kids. You get 2000 bucks off your taxes. It's not just a deduction, it's a credit. You get $2,000 off your taxes per child. The program that Trump and Ivanka are promoting is actually you get to borrow against that $2,000 tax credit. So you can take $5,000 this year as a tax credit to pay for you know, your parental leave for your six weeks off to cover your own salary if you work at a place that doesn't offer parental leave. You can take that six weeks off and pay yourself the 5000 bucks. but next year you can't take that $2,000 tax credit. And the year after you can't, you can't, you know, you're just stuck until you've paid it back. Big idea. Bold idea. Republican idea. Now, the Democrats have a big idea. Medicare for all. And today the Washington Post has an editorial that says, why, why even bother to run for president? on ideas that don't have a chance. Really, Washington Post? I'm starting to agree with Donald Trump that Amazon has too much influence over the Washington Post. They say, proposals should meet a baseline degree of factual plausibility, a bar that, for example, the Medicare for All plan that Mr. Sanders and Ms. Warren favor does not clear. This is the editorial board of the Washington Post. The United States is a vast pluralistic country and Congress will continue to reflect its ideological range. Well, yeah, it may not pass next month. It may not pass next year. It might not pass for 10 years. How long did it take for Reaganomics to take hold? Barry Goldwater was floating those ideas back in 64. It wasn't until 1980 that Reagan was able to put them into effect. It doesn't mean you don't propose ideas. But over on Fox News, Jesse Waters, he says, hey, only 27 million Americans don't have health insurance, so many great things have been done through Aetna, Blue Cross, and Blue Shield. Meanwhile, in the House of Representatives, the Medicare for All legislation now has 118 sponsors, an official majority of the House Democratic Caucus. And still, the Washington Post says, oh, you can't do that. You shouldn't run for president on that. You're not allowed to have big ideas. You're Democrats. Give me a break.
This is the Tom Hartman Program. Why is it that only Republicans are allowed to have big ideas, at least according to the corporate media? This is bizarre. It just boggles my mind that Republicans are praised for having big ideas. We're the party of ideas. Remember that? That was the whole Reagan thing. Huh? We're the party of ideas. What are your ideas? Oh, we're going to privatize Social Security. It'll be good for everybody. We're going to eliminate Medicare and make sure that, you know, you have private insurance companies that can just kick you off whenever they want. That's a big idea. We're going to cut taxes. The top tax rate is 91%. We're going to cut it down to 25%. We're going to cut capital gains taxes down to 25%. The taxes that Paris Hilton makes for sitting around the pool on her but waiting for the dividend check to arrive. We're going to cut those taxes. These are Republican big ideas. But Democrats? We'd like Medicare for all, please. Could everybody in the country please have health insurance just like Canada, just like all the other developed countries in the world? No, you can't. Sorry. Big ideas are only for Republicans. I mean, you got a billionaire-owned newspaper, the Washington Post. What a surprise. It doesn't want to raise taxes on billionaires to pay for Medicare for all. Should we be shocked? I don't think so. You've got, you know, CNN owned by AT&T. Was there a discussion of net neutrality? Oh, no, 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 no. Bernie Sanders says, you know, there's a, the health insurance or the, and the pharma companies are going to be advertising on the, your time is up, Senator. You're not allowed to have big ideas. And if you do, we're going to ridicule them. Ex-Congressman Delaney, John Delaney, the guy who's not even, doesn't even hold any public office. How would you like to attack Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? Oh, yes, I'd love to. By the way, I would like to propose a new little bit of language that instead of referring to, quote, liberal or progressive Democrats and moderate or centrist Democrats, that we should be referring to these folks, these presidential candidates, as corporate funded or non-corporate funded, billionaire funded or non-billionaire funded, or something like that. I, you know, I get your thoughts on how you think we should language this, but it seems to me like the big cleavage between multimillionaires like John Delaney and genuine progressives like Bernie and Elizabeth is that the former are enthusiastic about taking money from big corporations, lobbyists, and very, very wealthy individuals. And the latter are, and Bernie and Elizabeth, and maybe there are other Democrats in the race, but there's been so little focus on this that, frankly, I can't recall a single news story that summarized this. You know, where are people's money coming from? I saw there's a map in today's Washington Post, I believe it is, maybe it's the New York Times, that shows where the donations are coming from for the top Democratic presidential candidates geographically. Basically, you know, Texas is all in for Beto O'Rourke. Beto is really doing great in Texas. Nowhere else. And he needs to run for the Senate in Texas. He really does. Anyhow, you're showing that, but it's not showing which ones are taking money from billionaires and which ones aren't. Which ones are taking money from corporations and which ones aren't. But that's really, I think, the defining characteristic. Moderate means money from corporations. Progressive means money from small donors, from average people. I really think it breaks down to that.
And gee, why isn't the media talking about that? Because the media are big corporations who help fund campaigns. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Not to mention making Donald Trump president with $2 billion worth of free airtime, because boy, does that guy know how to do reality TV, which is the business we're really in. Yeah, I think as long as there have been people, there have been people concerned about their appearance and and particularly things like under eye puffiness and wrinkles and all that stuff that just kind of creeps up on us. A lot of remedies out there just don't work. But what does work is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags all disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TriPlexiderm.com with the code TOM. Or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM. This is the Tom Hartman Program. In our Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from Shadowlands, a new book by Anthony McCann, Fear and Freedom at the Oregon Standoff. This is from Chapter 1. My dear friends, Ammon Bundy began and begins again and again every time somebody hits play from 2016 all the way to the end of the Internet. It was the first day of a year that was to scramble an already agitated nation. Along the invisible pathways of the collective mind, the virtual tabernacle of the World Wide Web, Ammon Bundy, cowboy prophet and Facebook hero of liberty, was calling his people to the desert. Soon his friends in what they called the Patriot Movement were all hitting play, activating his familiar face, and sitting back in the glow of their screens as Ammon filled their hearts with urgent feeling. It was time, Ammon was saying, for what he called a hard stand. There had been some confusion about what he'd meant in previous communiques. He'd received some pushback, and he'd sat down now on the eve of calamity in front of the camera to try and clear things up. He's at his desk in a cowboy hat. He wouldn't appear in public much again without one until his arrest weeks later on a mountain road in the snow and pines of Oregon's Hard Luck National Forest. He's wearing a checkered western shirt and sporting what was for him a new, neatly trimmed growth of beard, further softening his visage. But even with a beard, Emmon Bundy couldn't help seeming what he was, a Latter-day Saint, clean-cut to the core. The strongest word I or anyone I know has yet heard him use is creep or hell or once with evident discomfort and while making it clear he was quoting someone else, horse S-word. Before being summoned to the desert of Oregon by his god, that fall he'd been enjoying making apple pies for his Idaho neighbors, using apples from his new orchard and delivering the pies himself. But the quiet idyll of that autumn was already long over. This was to be his last video address to his online community before leading the very next day an armed takeover of Oregon's Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. A MacBook Air laptop is open on his desk, its icon doing its quiet, intrepid work to place all our American lives and dreams, even those of right-wing holy insurrection under its sign. Pale winter light comes through the blinds of the windows behind him. In the video, which he titled Dear Friends, Ammon explains how it was God who had guided him to Oregon two months earlier, through news of the plight of two Harney County ranchers, a father and son, Dwight and Steve Hammond. 
Mandatory federal sentencing guidelines were about to send the Hammonds back to prison for arson charges stemming from fires on public lands, charges for which they'd already served time. Others, including his own father, had been urging him to look into the story. Like the Hammonds, Ammon's father, Cliven, was also a rancher. The Bundy family had achieved a national profile for the dramatic culmination of their 20-odd years struggle with federal authorities over their grazing rights on Mojave Desert lands in southern Nevada. That conflict had come to a head in April of 2014 in a remarkable event, an armed standoff with federal agents that had resulted shockingly in a seeming victory for the Bundy clan. This standoff and the family's ongoing struggle with the aftermath of their life-changing actions had felt like enough to Ammon, who had recently moved far from southern Nevada to a new home with his wife and six children in the sagebrush of southern Idaho, on the far northern end of Mormon country, on the outskirts of Boise. He himself was not even a rancher anymore, had not been for years. He ran a trucking fleet maintenance business, still headquartered in Arizona. As it turned out, even that move to Idaho would come to seem, to Ammon, a part of God's larger plan for himself, his friends, Harney County, and America. There had been something a little strange about the move, even at the time. He and his wife Lisa had felt a strong, simultaneous urge to relocate. It had been a feeling that had descended as if from nowhere. They couldn't understand it entirely, but they had followed it anyway and headed out in the spring of 2015, traveling about the Intermountain West looking at houses. Nothing had been quite right. But then on the very last day of their trip, they'd come to this very last house in a beautiful valley in Emmett, Idaho, and had known instantly that this was their place. It was one of many decisions Ammon would be guided to that year. That guidance, to Ammon's mind, had all been providential. How else to explain that he'd ended up moving to within three hours of remote Harney County, Oregon, where the whole Hammond story, which he had known nothing about at that time, had taken place. And now, here he was, just a few months later, barely settled into his new home, asking his online community to join him in Oregon, to take a momentous stand, a stand so big, he said, that nothing less than the future of American freedom might be at stake. After the move to Idaho, his next big revelation had come late one Monday evening on November 2015. On January 1st, seated in front of his camera, he told the tale of that night to his online followers. Lying in bed in his family's new home, tired after a long day, he'd received a message on his phone, a link to yet another article about the Hammonds. In the past, he'd shrugged off messages about the case. I felt that our family was fighting hard enough, he explained. We didn't need to go fight somebody else's battles. But this time, something was different. An urge quickly took possession of him, a sudden impulse to learn all he could about the Hammond family. He searched the internet and read everything he could find about the case. Unable to sleep, he read on Into the Dawn, the book is Shadowlands by Anthony McCain. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us. Back in district, back in Wisconsin, he is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, one of the head progressives in Washington, D.C., in the House, U.S. House of Representatives, where he ably, brilliantly represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin. His website is pocan.house.gov, P-O-C-A-N.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan, as in Representative Mark Pocan. And uh, Congressman Pocan, welcome back. Tom, thank you. I am. I'm back in district. I got back last night. I was in Detroit for the debates 
earlier in the week. Great. So I'm curious your take on the debates, and I'm also curious we had hit a majority of Democrats in the Democratic caucus calling for impeachment. I saw an article in the Times this morning that indicated that we were actually a vote or two away from a majority. So where are we at and what's going on with that, too? Sure. Well, first one, it was interesting to watch the debates in person, see the environment around it, watch the audience reactions. First night, I thought, you know, watching Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren so positively working on progressive issues and defining those issues and not going after each other, you know, was great. It was great watching that. And I think that stood out from the first night. The second night, you know, I think you saw some of the folks that maybe aren't the front runners make a few moments. I thought Cory Booker had a especially good night. I thought the vice president did fine, but I don't know if fine is enough um, these days. Mm-hmm. Overall, I think we showed we have a whole lot of people that can replace Donald Trump quite easily, and uh, I thought that was good coming out of there. On impeachment, I have to admit, the last week we were around when Mueller gave the testimony, I watched most of it via Twitter because I had a hearing during that myself, and it looked like it was going really well because the answers were great coming from Mr. Mueller. However, the people who were waiting for, you know, Broadway or Shakespeare didn't get that. So people who watched it kind of said, oh, it's a big letdown, and that was the media spin. But I think the reality is since then at least, I believe, 23 members have come out for an impeachment inquiry. He absolutely defined that report in a way that people have been speculating, and now he said it conclusively. And I think, you know, we are at a majority of the caucus. Don't forget that Friday after we left, Jerry Nadler said we are in an impeachment investigation. So while I think there may be some semantical confusion from that week, I think we are moving into doing everything we can to get the witnesses, which means an impeachment, whether it's called an investigation or an inquiry. I wish it was been more clear from leadership, to be perfectly honest, but you can tell by the amount of members that have come just since Mueller said something, that is where the momentum is. Well, it's going to come down to, I believe, it's in please correct me if I'm wrong on this or if you disagree. It seems to me that it's going to come down to the Supreme Court deciding whether what the House of Representatives is doing is a normal Article One function, that is to say, you know, a normal investigation by the House of Representatives where, yeah, you can enforce your subpoenas, but hey, good luck, you got to run it through Bill Barr, or whether it's a genuine Article Three investigation. In other words, the House of Representatives has taken on the role of the judiciary as defined in the Constitution by explicitly calling it an impeachment inquiry or whatever. In other words, is Nadler's language strong enough for the Supreme Court to say, yes, you're the equivalent of a grand jury and people can't ignore your subpoenas, or have they not yet hit that threshold? And if they are to hit that threshold, as defined by the Supreme Court, what exactly is the language necessary for that threshold? Thoughts? I think you're precisely right, Tom. In fact, that's why I think the frustration maybe a few of us had that last week was, you know, that day, clearly the answers came out of Mr. Mueller. We should have been high-fiving and using that to then launch the impeachment inquiry, use the proper wording. Instead, we kind of meandered into an impeachment investigation, and then 23 people in just a very short amount of time have come out for an impeachment inquiry. And I think, you know, unfortunately, we weren't as clear as we should have been, and I'm hoping that that will get fine-tuned a little more as we are moving forward, because clearly, I think most Most of us believe the impeachment inquiry has begun. Yeah. In other words, the House of Representatives, which is defined by Article 1 of the Constitution, Article 2 being the presidency, Article 3 being the courts, the House of Representatives has now officially moved into basically a court function because impeachment is a court function in which the House acts as the prosecutor, the Senate acts as the judge and jury, whether we've made that full transition. One last question, and then I've got a full board of calls here. I want to get to them. But the media keeps calling people like John Delaney centrists. 
And it seems to me that if you're talking about the center of America, in other words, what more than 50% of Americans want, that the centrists are the people who want a national health care system. The centrists are the ones who want free college education for everyone, debt-free college at the very least. The centrists are the ones who want the air cleaner. The centrists are the ones who are concerned about global warming, at least among the Democrats. Broadly across America, it's more than 50% across America, and it's like 90% of Democrats. So instead of calling people centrists, shouldn't we be calling them corporate-funded versus people funded or some kind of distinction like that. I know this is something that has been a big deal for your caucus, the, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, that right. progressives should be largely funding their campaign by individual small donations rather than doing the kind of fundraisers that we are seeing some of the Democrats doing, and certainly all the Republicans, where it's if you go to big donors' houses, huge money, big corporate money, setting up PACs on the side so that they can funnel millions of dollars in their campaigns, things like that. I know that Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are both refusing to take PAC money and corporate money. I don't know if there are any other Democrats who are taking that position. What are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, I, you know, I think Pramila Jayapal, my co-chair in the Progressive Caucus, she and I often use that very argument. In fact, I've heard it come from a number of folks that, you know, the center is really where the majority are in polling. That is Medicare for All. That is a Green New Deal. That is a lot of the issues raising the minimum wage of $15. Go down the list. Uh, that is where the polling shows the majority of people are at. You know, quite honestly, John Delaney was, I would still call him maybe even a conservative Democrat, because sure. even a moderate, I mean, you know, some of the positions he took were not even in the moderate wing. And I don't know if you'd say a centrist position is necessarily moderate, but I think really the centrist position of the Democratic Party is the very issues that you and I are talking about, because that's where the majority of people are at. And I thought Elizabeth Warren actually did a spectacular job of taking him on at the debate the first night and really making that point. And then she and Bernie Sanders really tag-teamed and delivered that home. I thought the first night was a much stronger night than the second night, personally, because I think we started the second night devolving into you know, criticizing President Obama when we probably should be putting our focus on Donald Trump. And, you know, it just wasn't quite the same, I think, level of debate that we had the first night. Well, the first night you had two solid progressives on stage who were refusing corporate money. Were yeah. there any people in the second night who are refusing corporate money, to the best of your knowledge? I'm not sure if Yang, I couldn't tell you for sure. He might, but right. I can't say that definitively. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there is a wing in general, and it's not even of the Democratic Party, of elected officials that are beholden to people who have lots and lots of money to give from special interests, which is the exact same, the very thing we're trying to correct in Washington, right? That's what H.R. 1 was trying to address, mm -hmm. the fact that people already have disdain for Washington because they think the special interests run it. And uh, we really need to make that a central issue because Donald Trump has proved that he is nothing more than uh, instead of draining the swamp, he just dug it a little deeper, put a high-rise luxury condo on it, and brought his own swamp creatures, and we really need to take that issue on directly. Yeah, amen. Sorry to monopolize your time here. I've been gone for eight days for this cruise, and, and which was wonderful, by the way. Kind of missed it. Anyhow, Andrew in Los Angeles, listening on KPFK. Andrew, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, greetings, Tom. Greetings, Congressmember Pocan. Um, uh, first of all, as a uh, lifelong progressive and member of the Green Party, I was so, I'm so impressed with the Democrats that I'm switching to a Democrat for this cycle, especially with the diversity with uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Julian Castro, Cory Booker, etc. Um, but my uh, question, my topic for now is uh, climate change. I'd like to present a, a different approach to climate change, one that can... Uh, 
help everyone, especially bring in the Republicans. Andrew, can you boil this down to a quick question or statement so that we can hear from the congressman? Sure. I think climate change is happening. It's inevitable. We, we can argue about what's causing it, but everyone can agree on what's happening. But if we, we agree that it's inevitable, I think we should focus on adapting uh, to climate change, which humans have been doing for thousands, millions of years, and we're great at it. So the, the, apparently Andrew's question is, is adaptation better than prevention? Yeah, I, and Andrew, I, I, I kind of disagree with you here. Sorry to say that. Um, I do think we have to talk about how to try to turn what I think we have a very short period of time to turn, maybe 10 or 12 years, according to some of the major studies, and that means we have to do some big, bold actions now. The good news is I heard a number of candidates over the two nights uh, say that, and I think you know one of the things that I always try to emphasize is that I think if we transform to a green economy, there are a lot of new jobs that are good family-supporting wages in those jobs, unionization uh, possible jobs, uh, making wind and solar and biomass, and that's all here rather than money going overseas to the Middle East, where then it seems like we chase uh, putting troops over there because of oil uh, all too often. So I think this is a real opportunity that's not just about the environment. It's about the economy. It's about our defense budget. It's about health care and more. Yeah, I'm in. Louise and I just got back from this uh, uh, Alaska cruise. It was great. And we took some excursions where we did a lot of walking. And you get back and you're kind of sore and tired. And that's when uh, New Leaf Natural CBD oil is great. I've recently discovered the powerful health benefits of CBD oil and have been using New Leaf Naturals CBD oil now for a few months. And I love it. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people who want the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic, it has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand that Louise and I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form, and it's totally legal. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's n-u-leafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Lou in Pueblo West, Colorado. Lou, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. You're on the air with Congressman Pokian. Hey, good morning. Just a quickie, uh, why don't we just call the corrupt Democrats corrupt Democrats? But uh, let me move on to my suggestion. If you look at the policies of the congressional progressives and you hold them up against a 1956 Republican platform, they're almost the same. I want to attract Republican voters. I don't care about them. They can't reason. But we could present the fact that our progressive platform is identical to what made America great in the 1950s. You know, a re good, solid Republican platform. There's a lot of Democrats that are confused by all the lies as well. Yeah, Lou, I, I hear you in that. If you look at the 50s, just for one example, we had some of the highest unionization rates in the country uh, in the in history, and yet we also had one of the smallest amounts of income inequality in history. So clearly, you're right. A lot of our progressive policies, I guess, do reflect uh, some previous periods, and they're really strong messages. I, I just think you know we should uh, be 
really proud about the issues that we are putting out there that now we're the, the progressive issues were at the center of these debates so we've won on many uh, fronts because of that I, I do think a special hat tip goes to Bernie Sanders because had he not uh, talked about some of these things years ago we wouldn't be where we're at now um, I think he and Elizabeth Warren are, are the strongest probably uh, people running when it comes to presenting progressive policy and they do an excellent job and uh, you're right we just need to talk about that to people and expand the electorate let's not fight for the two or three percent undecided in the middle let's uh, go to the people who don't normally vote but we know that since the public agrees with us sixty to eighty percent on many of these issues we know that six or eight out of ten people that don't vote will vote our way if we convince them to vote so it's much easier to show you stand for something uh, and get them out that's what people like Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin has done when she ran for Congress in the US Senate and she just won the state that's a purple state by ten points I, I think that is a good strategy yeah, and then, and, you know, to his point, uh, by the way, and we're, we're, we just have a minute here until the next break. It's not, not quite enough to get a caller in. Um, I've done uh, several shows on this, you know, basically over and over and over again over the years, where you take the 1956 Republican platform, which you can find online. It's easy to find. And, and you know, the Eisenhower uh, sales pitch, essentially. And Eisenhower bragged about the fact and their platform, their 1956 Republican platform. We added two million members to the union rolls in the first four years of the Eisenhower administration. We expanded Social Security to cover eight or 10 million more people. We expanded long-term uh, unemployment insurance to cover people who, who might be economically... St we, uh, we expanded educational opportunity across America. More people are going to college than ever before. These are things that Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican, actually campaigned on and won. Yeah. And if you think about today's Republican Party, which really appears to be more a cult of Donald Trump yeah. than a conservative political party, would call uh, Dwight Eisenhower, and for that matter, probably Ronald Reagan, socialist by most every standard they now abide by. Yeah, well, Reagan might be a stretch, but certainly <laughs> Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah, I love seeing some of his comments, though, even around things like the, the border, yeah. you know, about immigration, right? I mean, those oh, yeah, positions his, his stuff on immigration is pretty good. Beyond any Republican that's currently uh, an elected official. Yeah, although he's now been outed by his own words as a, as a flaming racist. That is, yeah. is pretty breathtaking. And so sad to see Patty Davis having to apologize for her dad in the Washington Post. Um, you know, I, I just, I feel bad for his kids, especially for Ron, Ron Jr., who's such a decent guy. Stephen in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Is my understanding that the Democrats are wholeheartedly supporting this two-year budget plan the Republicans want in? Well, it's already been passed, actually. Yeah, you're, Why? you're talking caps and numbers, not the appropriations. The appropriations process, that's what normally the 12 appropriation bills that will very likely be a omnibus bill or a continuing resolution potentially won't happen until we get back in September, the end of our fiscal year, September 30th. Um, but this is just overall set numbers that they're talking about at this point. Ah, so I completely misunderstood this. I saw that, uh, you know, it raised, I don't know if it raised the cap or, it, yeah, I guess it must have raised the cap by $300 billion. And I thought, oh, my God, that's, that's a bigger stimulus or nearly as big a stimulus as Obama used to get us out of the Great Re Recession. That, that's going to guarantee Trump a great economy going into the election. Um, but the actual appropriations have not yet happened. Is that what but you're saying? That is the numbers we'll use for appropriations. It's the details of where it gets spent that will have to be finalized. In the House, we did 10 of the 12 bills. Um, in the Senate, they hadn't done anything at all because they're waiting for this to set the actual numbers to work towards. That's why uh, I think it's going to be very hard 
because it's we're out in August in September to actually get something done that's not. So basically, what this did was just it raised the caps so that Donald Trump can't shut the government down again before he gets before yeah, his election. Yeah, and it did some really other things, Tom. That I think at some point we could almost have a program about, which is the defense spending um, that came out of the House was at 733 billion. Uh, out of this deal, 738 billion. Just in fiscal year 2017, at the end of the Obama administration, we were at 618 billion. That's a 20 percent increase in just a couple years. I, I voted against that in the authorization because it's just so high. So part of the problem is, uh, while there, you're right, there's going to be extra dollars that might help Donald Trump as he's looking at a presidential uh, re-election. I also am concerned that now Democrats are the ones that are supporting these uh, record high levels of defense spending, and that's what happened through the NDAA authorization, the National Defense Authorization. Right. Tom in Media, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I'm a union rep, middle class, retired. Why doesn't the Democrats, now that they have the House, introduce legislation that would strongly enforce the E-Verify program with draconian penalties against businesses in, say, just the construction and manufacturing to start to uh, get the illegal immigrants out of these jobs that are paying well and help the American union and the American worker. And I would add to that, I noticed that the, uh, the, the Trump's new appointee is bragging about his uh, national security guy, Ratcliffe, is bragging that he, uh, he busted 300 illegal immigrants. Right. He didn't put a single employer in jail. They never went after yeah. the employers. Why, why go after poor brown people when there's rich white people who are driving this process? No, and that's a good point. I can't say that there isn't already a bill introduced uh, to Tom, because I think there actually very likely could be. I just know that so far we've been trying to get the Trump administration to see if they would actually agree to anything beyond just talking about a wall, about a pathway to citizenship, about overall comprehensive immigration reform. And then we've done a few provisions we have passed specifically around separating of families and conditions for children. Um, but, Tom, I can't say definitively, because I actually think there may be a bill introduced like that. Yeah, and that would, uh, including pushing E-Verify. I, I believe so, because yeah. this is an issue I remember going back to my days in the Wisconsin legislature we talked about. Yeah. Beverly in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, uh, my question for the uh, congressman is this. How can Americans get medical cannabis legalized at the federal level? The way the law stands now, we cannot take a glioblastoma brain cancer patient from Albuquerque to Houston, Texas, MD Anderson, on a, we can't take it on the plane because it's illegal at the federal level. They can confiscate the medicine. They can turn us over to state authorities if, if the uh, airport officials find it in their luggage. And yet cannabis will stop grand mal seizures for my husband, who had the same cancer that Biden's son had. Oh, my. Yeah, Beverly, I, I wish I had a better answer for you that I'm going to give you. Um, but unfortunately, uh, federal laws are so antiquated, even though many states now have legalized marijuana, have medical marijuana. Um, the fact that at federal level, you still can't deposit your money from a legal marijuana business into a bank uh, is, is, I feel like I'm, I'm living decades ago. Uh, the fact that a business that uh, legally in one of these states sells uh, marijuana-related products can't can't deduct that as normal expenses on their taxes, which is why everything gets boosted in the amount of uh, expense uh, because of the federal laws. Uh, it makes no sense. The fact that marijuana is still Schedule One, which makes it hard to use to test in some ways, makes no sense. 
And uh, we've just had some real problems in the Senate. Uh, Chuck Grassley, the senator from Iowa, who's the head of the committee that has to approve federal judges, uh, until very recently, and I don't know if it's changed, refuses to uh, approve a federal judge if they've ever smoked marijuana. I mean, we have very antiquated approach to uh, marijuana laws at the federal level. Uh, I know we will, I think, likely pass some of those bills out of the House this session. I just don't know if they're going to get through the Senate or this president. But I, I, again, I wish I had a better answer because you're completely right. Most uh, everything around marijuana laws at the federal level is absolutely um, bizarre. Yeah. Uh, well, good luck getting that past Moscow, Mitch. Tom in yeah. Quincy, Mass. Hey, Tom, what's up? How you doing? Uh, so, Mr. Polkin, maybe, or yourself, I'm just thinking of ways to deal with Mitch McConnell. And when I hear him providing a litmus test for judges, uh, I see that as uh, against the Constitution, because the Constitution is one thing. And as you've told us before, when you go into the Heritage Foundation for Federalist Paper Beliefs, that's a litmus test that doesn't uphold what we've been trying. And I think that's grounds for impeachment, along with quite a few other things, like the he even said, I'm getting sidetracked, but he said, you know, he'd uh, bring a judge in at that point in time where he said no to Obama. So, yeah. your feedback, it'd be great to hear something on that. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you, I don't know if I've seen things that you could probably uh, get through Mitch McConnell's own Republican Senate that would uh, qualify for impeachment. So I don't know if that focus is the best focus. I think clearly uh, we know President Trump has at least in 10 instances uh, likely obstructed justice. And I think that's a very fair place to do impeachment, which is why you know many of us are, are I think, in or at least ready for the inquiry, however the semantics of it uh, turns out to be. I, I think on Mitch McConnell, I think the best thing we need to do is really this Moscow Mitch is a really great uh, nickname for him because uh, part of it is uh, he won't pass any laws to protect our election systems, which is ridiculous. That's not Democratic or Republican. But also every bill we've passed out of the House, and we're going to be talking about it during August, all the members of the House with our local media, um, he is taking literally to Kentucky and burying in someone's backyard. Uh, he refuses to take them up. I think that might be enough that we can beat him. If we beat him and a few others, we can have a Democratic president, Senate, and House, and then we actually can get some of these things done. So I think on impeachment, let's keep our eye on the prize. That's Donald Trump, and let's defeat both Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans that follow his lead. Well, we had six Republican senators go to Moscow for the 4th of July. Maybe that's where they're burying the legislation. Yeah, including my senator, Ron Johnson, by the Amazing. way. Amazing. <laughs> Steve in Zimmerman, Minnesota, here on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good afternoon, Congressman Pocan. I'm wondering, is just because Lindsey Graham is the chairman of his committee, is he allowed to change the rules for getting bills taken to the floor all by himself? I'm not what, quite sure. What specifically are you talking about, Steve? Yeah. Um, he took and bypassed all kinds of um, committee rules for getting some legislation out of his committee to the floor, and I think it just happened just yesterday. He got something out of the committee without a vote, in other words. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the, the majority party has a lot of latitude when it comes to things like that, so I don't think it's it's probably just a clever use of the rules, and then clearly Lindsey Graham's been around for a while. Um, our real problem is they're going to keep, you know, they don't pass much, right, out of the Senate other than conservative judges, and uh, I think the test will be in the coming months, but they're going to get done. By the time we get to the Iowa caucus, I don't think you're going to see a lot of big ideas ideas happening, or if you do, it's going to be one or two. So we have to put the pressure on the Senate now to get things done. Um, and, you know, while they're in the majority, they have the rules to their advantage. It allows them to move their things more expeditious 
lastly, it allows them to kill our bills, and that's part of the problem. Bob in Skokie, Illinois. Quick question for Congressman Pope. Hi, I'll, I'll be quick. Um, I'm 67 years old, so I've been on Medicare for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And regarding Medicare for all, if Bernie is correct and it's going to cost $30 trillion for 10 years for Medicare for all to be implemented, I did the math, and it would come out to somewhere between $8,800 and $9,300 a year per person to actually make that happen. There have to be some solutions to that, and I'm wondering uh, if Representative Pocan might have some thoughts about that. Yeah, Bob, so one of the things that didn't get mentioned, again, I thought this was, especially the second night, was covered very poorly, um, uh, both by CNN and by the the people responding to this, is there's all these other savings you're going to have out of the system. If you take out the administrative costs and the profit incentive, uh, that lowers that number significantly. If you take out what employers currently pay for health insurance, and now that that money goes to hiring more people or or buying new equipment, uh, that stimulates the economy. There's more than just a static number as if it's going to cost everyone something. There's a whole bunch of other factors that make it so at the end of the day, there's not uh, a huge additional cost. In fact, just the opposite. I would argue it'll cost less to provide more people coverage and you'll have better coverage for everyone. And that's part of the debate that we should be having, not kind of falling for, again, the Republican talking points that unfortunately I think they fell for the other night. Yeah, there's a giant hospital in New York that's identical to a, in size, a number of beds to a hospital in Toronto. And the one in New York has an entire floor with over 100 employees dedicated to billing and dealing with insurance companies. Exactly. And the one in Toronto has one office with two people. Yeah. So <laughs> that's where you're going to have those savings. And as you and I have t- talked about, Tom, as both small business owners, you know, we provide health insurance. If I don't have to provide that health insurance, that puts a lot of money back into what I can do to either give people raises, hire more people, buy equipment to grow the business, and all that has an impact. You have to factor all those things in for the real cost. Amen. Congressman Pocan, thanks so much for dropping by with us every week. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate it as always. You know, sometimes you don't get a good night's sleep and you look at yourself in the mirror and go, whoa, where do those eye bags come from? Well, (laughs) not getting enough sleep. You could fix that with Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TryPlexiderm.com with the code TOM. Or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM. H-O-M. Tom Hartman here with you. The Democrats, according to the Washington Post, are not allowed to have big ideas. That was a fine thing that Ronald Reagan wanted to go to supply-side economics and completely repudiate FDR and, and Keynesian economics and change the economic system of America to destroy unions and, and wipe out the middle class and elevate the, the top 1%, the Reagan donors. Uh, that was fine. That was a big idea. Remember back when they used to call the Republican Party the party of ideas? We're the party of ideas. New Gingrich. Ah, we're, we've got the contract on America. 
nobody pointed out that six out of the 10 things in the contract on America all pointed to the same piece of legislation, which was a tax cut for billionaires, but still, good, big, bold ideas. And apparently some of those big, bold ideas that the uh, Republicans have, hey, let's tear apart kids, right? Let's go after children in America. Right now, the Trump administration is trying to take free school lunches away from a half a million American kids. About a fifth of all American children are living in deep poverty. And the Trump administration, I, I shouldn't, I, I don't mean to be laughing. I, I just, I, it's so astonishing to me. And why are they doing this? Because this Republican in Minnesota who has a million dollars in savings, he's a retired guy in Minnesota, probably listens to right-wing radio and Fox News, hate, hate radio and hate television. He's got a million bucks. And so he goes down and he signs up for food stamps. And then, you know, goes on Fox and, hey, you know, I got a million bucks in the bank and I can get food stamps in Minnesota. And so, you know, like a reflex, right? Fox News says it. Donald Trump does it. Oh, my God, we got to get people off food stamps. And they're, they're going to use this. They, they, they are using this. This one guy as an excuse to cut a half a million people off food stamps. Three quarters of people who get food stamps have assets of $500 or less. And in fact, I would su submit to you that probably most of, most of them are, have negative assets. In other words, they're more in debt than what they own. It's, it's just, it's the cruelty. Nine, over 900 children, almost 1,000 children were separated from their parents at the border after a federal judge told Trump he couldn't do it anymore. And virtually all of them are still living separate from their parents making $750 a day for the private prison industry that John Kelly's now on the board of, one of these companies. It's, a, it's all about the cruelty. They revel in cruelty. So that's the Republican big idea, but oh, you know, that's, that's not what the Washington Post is editorializing about. They're editorializing about how Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, with their Medicare for All proposals, are proposing something that's just not realistic because it's not going to get through Congress. Well, when Barry Goldwater first suggested that we should privatize Social Security, nobody said, well, you shouldn't say that because it won't get through Congress. When George W. Bush in 2004, after he got reelected, went on a 20-some-odd city tour of America to promote the privatization of Social Security, nobody said, well, that's not going to get through Congress. You're not allowed to have big ideas. I mean, it's like... The big idea, you know, when Reagan came up with the idea of destroying unions, right, busting PATCO, the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, the Air Traffic Controllers Union, the very first thing he did when he came, when he became president, take, the, take, the, take Jimmy Carter's solar panels off the roof of the White House and break one of the unions that had endorsed him. Big ideas. The Republicans have big ideas. And, and that change, that Reaganomics change, doing away with Keynesian economics, with progressive economics that we had from 1935 or 1933, really, uh, you know, when FDR was sworn in in March of 33, all the way up until January of 81, when Reagan was sworn into office. During that period of time, we had the strongest growth in the history of the United States in the American middle class. 
Now, rich people were getting richer, but not quite as fast as the middle class was growing. And yeah, there was still a lot of poverty in the United States, but more poor people got out of poverty and into the middle class than any other time in the history of our country between, between 1932 and 1980. And then Reagan comes along and says, ah, screw that. We're going to go back to trickle-down economics, Herbert Hoover's economics. And what has happened? Your median household income in the United States right now is around 61 grand. Your, your median, median means half is above and half is below. Your median salary in the United States is a little below $40,000 a year. And by the way, this is where it was in 1999, you know, when you take into account inflation. And in fact, if you go all the way back to three decades, 30 years back, incomes are only up 14% in inflation adjusted terms. All of that increase happened before 1999. And basically, in other words, incomes went up during the Clinton administration and, they, and then they stopped with George W. Bush. But over that same period of time, and this is why credit card debt is exploding, why the middle class is freaked out, why when Donald Trump said, I'm going to save you economically, people actually thought he was telling the truth and voted for him. Average housing prices over that same period of time have gone up 290%. 290%. This is in today's Axios newsletter. They've almost tripled. A $50,000 house 30 years ago is now a $150,000 house. A, a half million dollar house 30 years ago is now a one and a half million dollar house. Prices have tripled. Tuition at four-year colleges, up 311%. Personal health care expenditures, the amount of money that you pay out of pocket for health care. So from 1990 to last year, up 51%. And yet wages are where they were in 1999. These are Republican big ideas. This is what the Republican Party has done. This is what they run on. You know, they, the tax cuts. Tax cuts are the major driver of this stuff. So now we've got 118 official Democratic sponsors for Medicare for All in the House of Representatives. The majority of the Democratic caucus has said yes to Medicare for All. And the Washington Post today is running an op-ed saying, you can't do that. That's too big an idea. Democrats can't have big ideas. Over on Fox, Jesse Waters, he says, only 27 million Americans don't have health insurance, and so many great things have been done through Adna Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Yes, it's a verbatim quote. And here we have the Washington Post saying, well, here's exactly what they said. Proposals should meet a baseline degree of factual plausibility, a bar that, for example, the Medicare for All plan from that Mr. Sanders and Ms. Warren favor does not clear. The United States is a vast pluralistic country, and Congress will continue to reflect its ideological range. That's just total BS. Congress is continuing to reflect the ideological range of the corporations that fund most of Congress, all of the Republicans and about half the Democrats. That's what's going on. And you've got a corporation, you know, of, of, of the, the Washington Post owned by a billionaire who is, a, you know, and I, I don't know if Jeff Bezos is politics. The Washington Post generally is just straight up telling the truth, which seems liberal. But I don't think this is the truth and I don't think it's a good truth. 
Judd Legum's uh, inf uh, newsletter, popular.info. Do you know about this? This is, this is just brilliant. I, I, I subscribed to this uh, when Jud, 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 Judd was on our program, Judd Legum. Went to popular.info and subscribed to it. I get it every day, and it's like every day, and he, he writes it himself. And he's a really good investigative reporter. Maine in Chicago. Hey, Maine, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing? Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, there's a real easy way to pick the candidates, uh, and there's a formula. Uh, the formula is either money over people or people over money. And mm. you got two real good examples, and that's uh, Sanders, Bernie Sanders is people over money. And you got Biden, who's money over people who want to continue to protect. Well, I think, I think Joe Biden and his partisans would strongly dispute that. The argument that they make yeah. is we're taking money from corporations and wealthy individuals who already agree with our policies. That, you know, this is, this is the position you hear. It may be true in some cases. It's, it may be true in yeah. most cases, but I still, I think it's, you know, it looks bad and, and yeah. it's unfortunate. But, but I also am enough of a realist to know that you may end up having to compromise some of this at some level right. if you're going to run against Donald Trump because of the Supreme Court changing the goalposts. They changed the rules of the game. Yeah. You know, they cut the knees out from underneath the referees in the Buckley decision and the Citizens United. And so... Yeah. There is a yeah. practical reality there, and I don't think that you can deny it, that without a little help from your friends, you're going to have a tough time. But I, I don't think that that means that that should be how you, the, you know, the core funding of your campaign. Anyhow, Maine, thanks a lot for the call, and thank you all for being with us today. This week, I'm so glad to be back. I, you know, we had a wonderful time on that cruise, but boy, do I like being here and sitting in this chair and doing this show and listening to you and having conversations with literally some of the smartest people on earth, including the ones right here in the studio with me, uh, Sean and Nate and, and Nick and Joyce and Dave and, and uh, Chase and, and, and Nigel and Sue and the whole, our whole crew. Thanks so much for being with us. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So please get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.